This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now, at just the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It is by the command of God our Saviour that I have been entrusted with this work for him. I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God, the Father in Christ Jesus, our Saviour, give you grace and peace. I left you on the island of Crete, so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home. He must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live without a disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. They must be silenced, because they are turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching, and they do it only for money. Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, said about them. The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. Can somebody help me? Oh. Um, please. Probably not. This is true. So reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving. Because their minds and conscience are corrupt. corrupt. Everything. Such people claim they know God, but they deny Him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. My goodness, that's a uh, great way to end a chapter, isn't it? <laughs> um, over the years, I've read a few times about people from Europe planning summer trips to Australia and them searching for really, really low, uh, uh, cheap flights. For example, this is Emma Nunn and Roel Christian from England. There's a picture of them kissing there. They were incredibly lucky to find extra cheap flights to Sydney when they were booking their Australia holiday. They were really looking forward to the sun, the beaches, the sights of Sydney, the Opera House, the bridge, but the trip didn't go as planned. And when they returned home, this is what they told the BBC. Our trip, everything on our trip was really, really confusing. And the reason for this was because as they landed and they listened to the captain's announcement, they discovered they were in Canada, Sydney, Nova Scotia. (laughs) Emma Nunn was good-natured about it. This is uh, the report from the BBC website. Obviously, it's a big disappointment, Miss Nunn conceded. But after it sank in, we both said, let's make the most of what we've got around us. They said they were enjoying, they enjoyed looking at the pickup trucks and eating local lobster. 
I feel very sorry for those guys. It must have been awful. I had to laugh though when I read people's comments on the web, particularly this guy's comment, Bob Smith of Scotland. He wrote, last year I booked a trip to Sydney, Nova Scotia and ended up in Australia. <laughs> Can you imagine how aggrieved I was? Couldn't get a decent lobster anywhere and <laughs> the pickup trucks were a waste of time. <laughs> when we believe the wrong thing though, and we go down the wrong path, we can make big mistakes, can't we? I believe I'm booking a trip to Australia. Ended up in Canada. I thought that nice man in Nigeria really was going to leave me $8 million in his will, but I ended up giving him all my money. <laughs> or on a more serious note, I thought this guy did the crime, so I found him guilty in the trial. There are lots of stories in history, aren't there, where people were found guilty of a crime they never committed. If we believe the wrong thing about a person, it affects how we treat that person. And we can really harm that person in the process. Not understanding the truth, believing a lie can actually be really, really harmful to other people and to ourselves. And this is especially true when it comes to questions about faith. Do you remember, I talked about it before actually, the awful events of Waco, Texas, I remember watching the events in 1993 on the news as they unfolded, events around this man, David Koresh. That's a photo of him when he was visiting Australia. He was the leader of a religious group called the Branch Davidians. And he taught that he was a special deliverer, a messiah, descended from King David, and he was really, really persuasive. Hundreds of people were persuaded to believe in David Koresh to their ultimate harm. He taught that he'd uncovered deep secrets of the Bible and they needed to follow him. And he interpreted the book of Revelation to them in a very unusual way. And they, his followers then began stockpiling, because of his teaching, they began stockpiling guns and weapons, which resulted in the authorities knocking on his door and then a siege of many weeks happening after a gunfight broke out. The siege then ended when the FBI agent stormed the property And sadly, members of the cult set a number of buildings on fire, started shooting their own, including kids, and 76 people died. When we believe significantly wrong things about a person, there is potential for terrible harm to be done, sometimes to that person, but sometimes to ourselves. What we believe about someone is incredibly important. And if it's true like this for a person, if it's true... If this is true for a person, then it's even more true for God. What we believe about God is incredibly important. And so if we get it wrong, it can have devastating consequences. That's why it's so important that people who teach about God to get it right. That's what today's Bible passage is about, verses 10 and 11. For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk, deceiving others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. They must be silenced because they're turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching, and they do it for money. So these words were written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, to the early church in Crete. Crete, of course, being the same island it is today in the Mediterranean. And you can see from what's written that Paul was really concerned about people in the church who were spouting dangerous teachings, dangerous ideas. And one of the things that seems to have come up again and again in the early church, including in Crete, was this idea that circumcision was a key requirement to be a Christian, to be part of God's family. And that idea, of course, didn't appear from nowhere. 
there was a reason people were taught this. And I'm sure you know the reason. What was the reason? Right, exactly. It's in the Old Testament, isn't it? The covenant between Abraham and God was was that all males should be circumcised, and that's how you became part of God's family, you became Jewish, an outward sign of that covenant. So to be Jew meant you were circumcised. So when the message of Jesus was taken into the ancient world of the Gentiles to non-Jews, there was a question. Should people be circumcised to be part of God's family? And the early church, early on, discovered that the answer was no. God made it clear through the work of the Holy Spirit and then through discussion and discernment of early church leaders that people didn't need to be circumcised to be part of God's family. What mattered was a repentant, faithful heart, dedication to Jesus. That's what God was calling for. That's what was needed to be forgiven. That's what was needed to be a child of God. A repentant heart and a life to follow Jesus. Faith in and dedication to Jesus and dependence on God's mercy and grace. That's what matters. Not ticking off a list of Old Testament rules. Not circumcision. Because when people start to believe that their connection with God occurs because they follow rules and regulations, then genuine, authentic faith begins to die. People turn away from truth when they believe false teachings. And it's truth that sets us free. Remember what Jesus said, the truth will set us free. Lies always lead to damage. If I believe that I'm okay with God, that I'm part of his kingdom, that I'll be in heaven eternally because I'm circumcised, what's that going to do to me? It's going to damage my faith. It'll mean I'll start to think of salvation as some sort of formula. I figured out the formula, so I deserve to be saved. It's not a very humble way to think, is it? It sounds like I've forgotten that I'm actually lost without God, that I'm a sinner who needs mercy. Remember, Jesus said the poor in spirit will see the kingdom of heaven. People who know that they're lost without God, they know they need him. They're the ones who see God. But when I simplify my faith and standing with God to whether or not I'm circumcised, then it's just possible that I'm damaging myself to the point that I'll no longer see God. And if I start teaching others then, then I'm harming them too. I'm creating unhelpful barriers to others by insisting they get circumcised. I'm clouding their understanding of Jesus and the grace that he brought. Teaching lies about God is damaging. And so is believing lies about God. So we need to be on the lookout for false teachers in our churches. It's not bad teachers, actually, that are the problem. If I talk for too long and I'm boring to listen to, it's frustrating, but it's not a disaster. But if I was an incredibly engaging and charismatic teacher who taught lies about God, then it is a disaster because it leads to an unhealthy church and that can actually even lead to a destruction of a church. Of course, today the problem isn't with teaching of circumcision. But we've got our own set of false teachings throughout the Christian world. Some of them aren't too damaging, but some are big. Some of them do cause incredible problems. So what do you reckon? Are there any teachings that you've heard about in churches today that you think might be significantly wrong and untrue to the point they can damage churches?
What do you reckon, Neil? Anything that is subtle manipulation. Subtle. I think the things that are subtle are the things that are most dangerous. Yep. The things I... that are obvious, I don't think are that dangerous. I think it's the things that are subtle. Um, trying to use and take advantage of people. Yep. Subtle manipulation of people and ideas. Big One problem. Okay, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Once saved, always saved. Could be quite a dangerous one. It doesn't certainly match what we see. Anyway, what was your one? Oh, I was just saying I was um, fight with Tim on that one. Yeah? But, um, cool. Uh, I think um, glorification of marrying the saints. Okay. Yep, so we can almost have idols of people that lived, can't we? Other gods. I was surprised yeah. that Isn't that interesting? Yep. Okay, yep. So denial of Trinity, yep. Okay, so a requirement for Sabbath. Requirement. Yep. Yeah, it's a good one. Yep. So that's that's almost legalistic, isn't it? connected, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting looking at this. I've pretty much experienced all of these. Yeah. Looking at it, looking at experiences, I've actually probably seen all of these. Yep, I think I've seen all of them in one place or another. 
and they're easy to grab onto, aren't they? Let's spend a few minutes looking at a few of them. Now, obviously, it's really easy to be critical of other churches and renew, and each of us in our individual faiths have things that we get wrong. So it's important to do this with some humility, but let's look at a few of them anyway, because it is important to think about different doctrines and how they can damage us. So the first teaching I want to look at is the teaching of speaking in tongues. I think you said that one, Neil. Um, You remember back to the story of Pentecost in Acts, Acts 2, God's Spirit came on the followers of Jesus in a real and physical way, and they suddenly began speaking in other languages. Today, there are many Christians who experience something similar, and probably some of you here have have experienced that, where you feel that when you're worshipping God, you can worship in words that aren't your own, and that aren't English words, or another language, and aren't intelligible to other people. It's not common in many denominations, it's certainly not common in Baptist churches, but it is common in other denominations, particularly Pentecostal churches. And most churches and most Christian teachers teach that speaking in tongues is a special gift from the Holy Spirit to some Christians, some believers. But there is this small number of churches that teach if you become a Christian, you must speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, then this is evidence that you're not a Christian, that you haven't received forgiveness and haven't received salvation. It remind, That reminds me a little bit of Paul's problem in his day when people said you couldn't receive, you weren't saved unless you were circumcised. The idea of tongues is almost similar, isn't it? Years ago, I visited a church where this was taught, and during the service, a young man came up to the front of the church to ask for healing and prayer. And the minister prayed with the man during the service in front of everyone, and he said to the man as he prayed, you've got to pray and let the Holy Spirit enter you, and you will speak in tongues. And the young man up the front just stood there. He silently, he didn't feel comfortable with that. But the pastor kept pushing, you've got to pray. The Holy Spirit will come in and you'll speak in tongues. You can't receive God's healing until you've opened up your heart to his spirit. And the seconds dragged on and it felt like the minutes dragged on. The young man looked more and more uncomfortable. And finally he caved into pressure. He prayed out loud in words and sounds that we didn't understand. And then he was allowed to sit back down. I wonder, though, what that episode actually did to that man, that young man. I hope it didn't actually damage his faith, but I actually think it might have. What the pastor taught there wasn't true, and it's damaging. The whole thrust of Scripture is about God's grace. Our forgiveness, our spiritual healing from God comes from his mercy, the work of Jesus on the cross, his death, his resurrection. We're children of God when we place our faith and trust in Jesus. There's nothing in Scripture that says that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a child of God. All right, second teaching I want to look at is the prosperity gospel. So this is the teaching that goes something like this. God wants you to prosper. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be healthy. And he will bless you financially with and bless you with good health when you show your faith by giving donation to the church and by positive confessions where you claim what you want God to bless you with. So Christian teachers who teach this prosperity theology look at passages like Luke 6.38, which says, give and you will receive. The amount you give will determine what you get back. Let me read you a story from a website from a very prominent church leader in America. 
Todd showed me from the Bible how Solomon offered a thousand animals to God. He told me there's something very special about the number thousand and the miracles he had seen when people crossed that line in giving. Then he challenged me, Pastor Benny, why don't you sow a thousand dollars and see what happens? If it doesn't work, don't ever invite me back to speak at your events again. I'll admit I was skeptical. But what Todd didn't know was I needed God to work a miracle in a certain area of my own finances. I was in a situation where I truly had to trust the Lord for a huge miracle. So I took a large step of faith and planted a sacrificial gift into the ministry. I was amazed at how quickly and miraculously God worked on my behalf. Are you ready for God's abundance to literally pour over you? Are you ready to be debt free? Is it time for you to stop living from paycheck to paycheck? If so, God's increase is about to be revealed to you in an unprecedented way. As I've shared before in my medical work, I look after people who are dying and I see a number of people that have had this prosperity gospel taught to them. One woman who was dying told me that she had given her money to a faith healer, had claimed her health and she had faith God would heal her. So she wouldn't tell her husband what was wrong with her, what the diagnosis was, because that would display a lack of faith and then she wouldn't receive healing. So she died without ever talking to her family. Her family watched in the dark, not knowing what she was dying from, wondering whether she'd get better. The teacher who taught her that did a lot of damage in her life. Sure, Jesus did say, ask and you'll receive. But he balanced this with words that reminded us that people would suffer, as Tim said, that we'd struggle. If we simplify our faith to prosperity theology, then we turn it into a magic formula where we can tell God what to do for us for our material benefit. And our faith that was once about following God changes to become a faith where God follows us. It's no longer your will be done, but my will be done. That's dangerous. All right, final false teaching is a sensitive one. Uh, And Nicole kind of mentioned it. It relates to what we do with the Bible when we read something that we're uncomfortable with. I'm sure many of you, like me, have read passages and scriptures where you think, that doesn't sound fair. And one of the teachings of the Bible that seems to contradict in the modern worldview is the Bible's teaching and perspective on marriage and sexuality. A number of churches around the world have really struggled with the biblical teaching about sexual desire and relationships in the last decade. For example, all the way back in 1987, a very high-profile leader in the United States denomination authored a recommendation to his church about changing its views on the appropriate context for sex. This is what his recommendation said. I find it difficult to believe that a church that blesses dogs in in a Virginia fox hunt can't find a way to bless life-giving, lasting relationships between human beings. His report went on then to recommend that that the church blessed non-marital sexual relations, including sexual relations between young adults, gay couples, divorcees, and those who'd been widowed. I guess back in 1987, the world, the Western world had begin, begun to shift already, and many people no longer felt comfortable with the traditional biblical view that sexual relationship should only occur within marriage. Anyway, this particular church denomination embarked down the 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 road of reviewing those aspects of the Bible that didn't seem to fit modern worldviews. No longer was the Bible seen as God's authoritative view in the Episcopal Church. 
Instead, it was just seen as a useful guide, which could help in spiritual understanding. First, it was just issues like the expression of sexuality that were up for change. But changing that teaching on sex was only the tip of a much bigger iceberg. Bit by bit, things got changed more and more. And then over over the years, this particular church denomination has had more and more free ways of interpreting the Bible. In 2009, the Archbishop of this denomination gave a series of interviews and statements where she said that she would never tell another person that they needed to put their faith in Jesus. Here are her words. In some parts of Christianity, we've turned salvation into a works where you have to claim Jesus as your Lord and Saviour to be saved. So people in her church are taught that faith in Jesus isn't necessary. Yeah. Yes. And it's really difficult because our daughter is divorced. Yeah. So we kind of in between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. In fact, I had friends that said, because your daughter's divorced, if she gets married again, we will not come to the wedding. And they're Christian friends. Yeah. So, and I, I appreciate that, and I kind of thought, yeah, that's fine. But where we stand with that? Really. Her husband cheated on her. Yep. He had an affair. He's now living with his partner and yep. his child. You know, the family is destroyed. Yeah. We're actually praying that she finds another partner. Is that not right for us to do that? It's it's a yeah. really, really hard one. situation. And look, I don't know the answer. Um my my view is Jesus said divorce was wrong except in the case of marital unfaithfulness. Yeah. So that's that's my view, and I think you can't help it if someone's abandoned you. There's nothing you can do about that. And so my personal view is remarriage yeah. is probably biblical. I know other ministers interpret the Bible differently and other Christians interpret the Bible differently, but clearly the Bible says divorce is wrong. And clearly it talks about not remarrying. And that's probably got to be the starting point, doesn't it? Saying the Bible at least says that. And not telling someone else what they can and can't do with their lives. You know, Obviously, we, should, we, can't, we can't tell someone else what they have to believe or what they should or shouldn't believe. We've got to come up with our own individual view on that. Um, and it's really hard sometimes. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's a really good one. It's a very topical issue in our society because divorce is so prevalent. I'm in the exact same boat because my parents got divorced and not remarried, so it's like dad always had that position whether he would get remarried or not. And like the way I go about it is, well, I feel like mum has done the wrong thing, and there's nothing dad can do about that. But I think it's not for me to tell dad whether he can get remarried or not. I think it's up to his interpretation of what he mm-hmm. believes. It's a little bit like a lot of a lot of younger Christians living together, not married. Yeah. And you know what helped me was actually that that part in the chosen where Jesus actually met the woman at the well. Yeah. And I yeah. thought, you know, here was a woman that had all these relationships, and yet yep. she was just so loved by him. Yep. Yep. You know, when you're not as yeah. right to be married, it doesn't change God's love for you. No. So the pastoral care issues are different, isn't it? How you treat someone just because they're living. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? But yes, it's, it's, it's like, like with a lot of issues. I guess we can say this is what the Bible teaches. 
And what you do with it is up to you. We're not going to change the words of the Bible. But it doesn't mean we're not going to love you, interact with you in, and be part of your life just because you're doing something different than what the Bible says or what I think it says. And with your daughter's particular example, it's even harder because um, she was abandoned. And I think they're probably, you know, we know God's gracious in all of that, don't we? And not judgmental. And we're not called to judge people either. So it's there's a big balance between looking at teachings and trying to make sure that we each understand the biblical view, but also treating people in a way that's gracious. And I don't have an easy answer. <laughs> Yeah. And look, my, my prayer would probably be the same as yours, I think. Yeah. And if it's wrong prayer, God will take care of that. He's big enough too, isn't he? Yeah. I think the thing is that when we change our... We, we say that part of the Bible doesn't matter. That's when it starts to, to change and you take one step and then another step and all of a sudden you're a church that says you don't need to believe in Jesus. That's not important. Yeah, that's that's kind of the it's that slippery slope that happens, isn't it? Mm. I think it's different looking at what the church teaches. When you decide to come to someone's wedding, like my brother got we married and of course we went to his wedding when he got divorced. That's part of showing love for that person. You know, we had some friends, we had some friends once, we talked about travelling overseas and how Nicole and I went to a Hindu temple, you take your shoes off and you go in and you look at the different idols and understand what the beliefs are. And our friends said, oh, I'd never go into a Hindu temple. They were horrified. Because for them, going to the temple was a representation that we might agree with it. Yeah. Whereas for us, it was just interest in understanding. Yeah. And so it's a little bit like that going to someone's wedding, isn't it? It doesn't mean you agree with everything in their life, but I still want to support them as people. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. If my brother married another man, I don't know how I'd feel like that. I think my answer would be, I wouldn't want to go there to support it. Even though, like, he's getting married, I, I just couldn't bring myself to, to support it in any way. <laughs> so it's hard. Yeah, that may feel like that's I still love beyond it, showing love. That yeah. may feel like yeah. it's support yeah. in a different way. Yeah. It's just different circumstances. Yeah. yeah, and you've got to, each person's got to come to their own conclusion yeah. in that. There's also even this marrying an unbeliever when you have a believer marrying unbeliever. Yeah, that's right, because that's forbidden in the Bible too, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's a really tricky situation because you start to say, I won't go to a wedding where I don't think it's the biblical thing to do. Mm. You're in a difficult position. And then yeah. you start to only not go to weddings where you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. You start to become inconsistent. <laughs> so if you go to a wedding where somebody's being misjoked um, and you're like, yeah, that's all okay, you go to a divorce wedding, it's like, that's okay, but then you're like, don't go to a gay wedding. It's sort of like there's different you know, yeah. messages you can give the community where you're like, this rule matters, this doesn't, all that yeah. stuff. Stand up and go, I object. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it is hard. I went yeah. to a wedding where I didn't agree with it and I decided that I'm not going to go to a wedding anymore. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you actually, you, you are, I, I mean, your experience is different, but I, I feel like I'm celebrating yeah. the occasion. Mm-hmm. Gee, it's hard. I'm not, showing, yeah. I'm not just 
being present, I'm actually like, yeah, this is the party, this is the best thing ever, let's all celebrate. And I was so like dead inside. <laughs> I can see how that could. Yeah. Gee, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. And the more the more um, Christianity differs from the world's view of things, the harder some of those issues are going to become. Yeah. And I guess that's why we all want to give each other grace in what we all decide and how we how we think about these issues and how we interact with them. Mm. He will. So yes, I, I chose to forgive and move on because I think that's the part that's important to me because as, Christ, as, as Jesus said, without love. Yep. Yeah. That's how people will know you're his disciple. Yeah. Yep. I'm looking through the, the time, I see that my sermon's still got 10, 15 minutes to go and we're meant to finish at 5, like be out of here at 5. I think we can probably just bring it to a close. We can always continue another week. Sorry. It doesn't really matter, does it? It's better to have a discussion. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Why don't you pull the slides up then and I'll, I'll truncate it. I'll truncate it. Yeah, we'll truncate it then. So I guess this is just a picture of a melanoma. You cut it out early, it's gone. <laughs> It's gone. And then if you don't cut it out, though, you don't get rid of it, it spreads. So the next picture, you might as go to the next slide. I'll just, I'll just talk the slides through. And you've got all these other melanoma spots in the brain throughout the bones. And, and that's a little bit what bad teaching is like, false teaching is like in a church. Um, once, once it starts, if it's not removed... Before you know it, it's spread everywhere. And that's, I think, what Paul's writing about in this first chapter of Titus, that it's really important to remove it early on. And it's important for us to be on the lookout for it whenever at other churches uh, down the track in the future. Uh, It's important for us to hold our leaders to account so that they're doing good teaching, not false teaching, to choose leaders who have good teaching. Remembering that Jesus said that you'll know someone by their Fruit as well. So often bad teaching goes along with uh, lives that don't match up to what they should, which I think is why there's so much in one Titus in Titus one about how a, a pastor should live, how an elder should live. So let's just strive to live lives of love and to choose church leaders who are pure in their lives and who honour Jesus in their teaching. We'll grow in faith that way. We'll run the race that he calls us to. Our faiths will flourish. Our churches will flourish. And we'll find our path to heaven. One day we'll hear Jesus when he says, Well done, good and faithful servant.